It was a particularly cold Wednesday on January 26, 2011, and the weather conditions were only growing worse. Due to an impending nor'easter storm, Juniata Park Academy ended classes early and sent students home to avoid the harsh blizzard. 27-year-old Ellen Greenberg was a first-grade teacher at the school and with a heart as big as her smile, was adored by her students. Ellen finished the school day by calling all her students' parents in order to make sure that each one made it home safely. When everyone was accounted for, Ellen drove home to the Philadelphia apartment she shared with her fiancé, Samuel Goldberg. That would be the final day that Ellen's students were able to spend with their beloved teacher. That night, behind her locked apartment door, Ellen was found dead in her kitchen, with 20 stab wounds to her upper torso, including the back of her head. Her violent death was ruled a suicide. 12 years later, her family is fighting to change that. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. Not a day goes by that Josh and Sandy Greenberg aren't plagued with the memories of their daughter's death. For years, Josh and Sandy have alleged that the investigation into Ellen's death was mishandled. When investigators first arrived at the apartment, the door to the apartment was broken down by Ellen's fiance. Police reported there were no signs that pointed to an earlier forced entry and did not identify any defensive wounds on her body. Two reasons the crime scene was treated as a suicide. The medical examiner on the case had initially ruled Ellen's death a homicide. However, without any formal explanation, that same ME switched the ruling to suicide. Joshua and Sandy Greenberg have long been in a legal battle to change Ellen's manner of death to homicide or undetermined. In 2019, the couple filed a civil suit against the medical examiner's office to have that ruling changed. On September 13th, a Pennsylvania appellate court ruled that Josh and Sandy did not have the standing to bring their claim. Despite all the setbacks, the Greenbergs have not lost hope. They join me now to discuss why they have not given up and what lies ahead. We wanted a, a, a judge's ruling that the Philadelphia uh, authorities are going to meet with our lawyers and our experts and let them go over the police files, which they were not allowing us to do. Because we have a, a, the uh, appeal to the Supreme Court. And we also have, we're also suing the medical examiners for willful misconduct to cover up a homicide. We believe this was a homicide. And we believe there's something here. We don't, we don't know the why. Okay, I'll be very honest with you. That's a very big question here. Why is this happening? But in the meantime, the city has classified our daughter's death as a suicide, which is not a crime, but yet they're withholding all the evidence from us. The sunshine laws in the United States are not as open as people feel. We are really fighting a fight that, yes, is for Ellen, but it's for everybody in that, number one, the medical examiner's uh, conclusion, let's call it, is unimpeachable. You can't refute it. Number two, that the police in a, an investigation or in a crime have the right to withhold their files from somebody like us, meaning with a father and mother of a, of a, a murder victim, we think. And they won't let us have the evidence because there's they say this the the um, sunshine laws, as I said, have this exception, and this exception is preventing us from knowing what really happened to our daughter, what really go, is going on, and maybe even the why this has taken twelve, thirteen years to get to this point. It's interesting that 
Philadelphia, the police, the authorities are really fighting us and their lawyers have, have used every tool in the toolbox. And this is not just a, a, a Pennsylvania problem. This is a national problem. If you have children and something like this would happen to them, this is what you'd be up against. And where we were just on a mission to help get the truth about our daughter, it really is a much bigger issue. They're saying, essentially, that the medical examiners are unapproachable. That whatever they conclude is that's it. Goodbye. Take your, take your whatever and go. They also say you can do whatever you want with that. But as long as they have that conclusion that Ellen has committed suicide, it hampers any of our efforts to get to the truth. Can we go back and will you please share what happened to Ellen and go back to the beginning? On January 26, 2011, I spoke to Ellen in the morning on her way to school and I was getting ready to go to work and we had a very usual um, conversation that morning and my husband went to work, I went to work, she went to work, and with there was a impending nor'easter snowstorm. And we, Josh's we, we office were... closed. My we were I was sent home from my office and the Philadelphia schools were closing early, in which case she tried to reach out to each child's parents to make sure they were accounted for so they could be home and safe. Then after um, school that day, on Ellen's way home from work, she filled up her gas tank at 1.26 on January 26, 2011. Ellen was living with her fiancé in Philadelphia, in Maniunk. We were living in Harrisburg, roughly two hours away by car. You know, we had we were home and the snow is just falling and falling and falling and you don't hear snow plows going by or anything. I made dinner. We cleaned up. We were watching TV. Probably was a very good dinner, too. (laughs) And then I got a phone call on my landline from Richard Goldberg, the fiance's father, stating that something terrible has happened to Ellie. I didn't really know what that meant. And I screamed for Josh to pick up, you know, another phone. And I said, well, where's the ambulance? And he says, there is no ambulance. And I'm like, well, what happened? You know, what does that mean? He goes, well, we don't know. We're waiting down here. They're all in the lobby of the building. And um, kind of at that point, it went dark in my mind. Ellen was engaged at this time to her fiancé, Samuel Goldberg. But Ellen had been asking us to come home to Harrisburg. Now, we didn't have any understanding of why she would want to come home. And we were a little bit perplexed about it. I also felt her behavior was not what it was. So my wife and I made a a deal with Ellen. If Ellen went, I thought she was having, I thought she might have had a nervous, little nervous breakdown or she was anxious or something or whatever. I didn't know. So we made a deal that if she went to a psychiatrist of our choosing and they worked out a deal to go home, Ellen could come home. My concern was twofold. I wanted somebody to help my daughter, which I couldn't do. And I also wanted her to keep the job. I didn't want her to walk away from a, ver- a good teaching job, which in those days, 12, 13 years ago, was hard to get. And we had no clue that this was going to lead to where we are today and what happened. So let's go back to the night of the phone call with Mr. Goldberg, Sandy, Sam's father. We, 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 we lost it there. We had no idea what was going on. Uh, nobody was calling us. Nobody was telling us. We, and it set the stage for what was going to happen from that day onward. In other words, the police never call us. The district attorney doesn't call us. The medical examiner doesn't call us. Uh, the Goldbergs don't call us. No one calls us. We didn't know anything. We didn't even know our daughter had died. Had or how she had died. Or how she had I died. I didn't understand the circumstances. We did get a call, I believe, the next day after the autopsy was 
performed, I think, from one of the assistant medical examiners. But honestly, it's very, very vague it's, and blurry. It's really not a nice way to handle things. If this is the way they handle things with the authorities in Philadelphia, I should have known that we were going to be in for a real treat for the next 11, 12 years. Um, they didn't. No one communicated with us. We were in, Maybe they thought we were, we were bumpkins in Harrisburg or something. I will tell you right now, I was a periodontist. So I did uh, specialty dental work. I had college, four years of dental school, two years of specialty school. My wife is a trained dental hygienist. We have education. We're not stupid people. All I know is that we take, I would take CPR every two years to maintain my license. And the very first thing you are taught when you take CPR is call 911. You don't wait around. It's the, you do it immediately. And if you can't do it, you call out to someone else to do it. So I've given you a background to that day, and here we are today, 12, 13 years later. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. Before I ask this next question, I want to go back for a moment. Um, Mrs. Greenberg, as you, uh, Mr. Greenberg, were saying that Ellen was requesting to come home and, you know, before you sort of brokered that agreement, um, you said, I, I wasn't sure what was going on with her, but I saw you shake your head, Mrs. Greenberg. Did you feel differently about no, her? I didn't think that at all. I just, you know, she was different, in my opinion. She was struggling with something. I don't know what, but not what Josh said. I no. You had to to confirm. So you had no concerns about her. No, I thought mental she health was and, in a safe. I yeah, thought she was safe. in a safe household. Mm-hmm. So then can you share, um, once you did learn the manner of her death um, and it was initially ruled a homicide and then switched to suicide, can, can you share with listeners and those who are being introduced to you for the first time your side of the story and why currently Ellen's death has been and maintained uh, a suicide and yet you feel differently? Well, I had to pay for the crime scene pictures. I had to pay for the police reports or request them. Um, and then I kept reading it over and I just couldn't get over all the stab wounds. And I had no idea how many centimeters each and every one of the wounds was. And some were smooth edged and some were jagged edged or serrated and we didn't brutality. believe. We, didn't, we never believed that Ellen committed suicide. She she would never do that. And we eventually we learned to, to what to do. We hired Cyril Wecht. Cyril mm-hmm. Wecht is a forensic pathologist, or I don't know exactly the title. And he <laughs> reviewed the case, and his conclusion was suspicious of homicide. Now I really wanted something more substantial of that, but that was what they gave us. And I never realized that we were going to be involved with so much legal, legal, legal ease. For lack of, I never say so he was not going to say definitely is a suicide, a homicide, because he could be sued. Everyone's watching there, you know what? Because of lawyers, no one wants to stick a neck out to make a a thing. But gradually, after Sir Owect, we hired Henry Lee. You've heard of him, and he said there was a stage that was definitely a homicide. After that, we hired a blood spatter specialist, a detective, Scott Eilman. After that, we we didn't hire. Somebody came to us who was a former state trooper who had been involved in over 800 cases of homicide and death like this. And he came to us, and he has worked with us pro bono. Tom Brennan. Tom Brennan. And we pay his uh, expenses. So we didn't know what we were doing. In fact, when Tom came to us, I have to be honest with you, we were very suspicious that he was going to take us for money or something. And the first words out of his mouth, I'm not here for the money, I'm here to help you. And that was because somebody else in Harrisburg had told him the story, and he reviewed the documents that we had at the time, which was very incomplete, but he said this is not a a suicide, this is a homicide. So I, I, I don't know how to answer your question any other way. This is how we learned 
This has been a learning experience. I'm not an attorney. I said I was a periodontist. Sandy's a dental hygienist. But we do know bio- I do know biology. I do know science. I'm not uh, ignorant to these things. And the whole, there are wounds in her body. Eventually, we had the body with the wounds, with the knife wounds, recreated. You might have seen that. Have you seen that? Photogrammetry. Yeah. Yes. And we had that recreated and analyzed. I mean, I couldn't understand. You can't get in certain positions and certain angles. And those wounds, they had to have been so painful. The next big event, I'm going to call it, was a secret meeting. This is where Osborne and Galeno, the two medical examiners, met with police. They met with assistant district attorneys, and they met and they came up with the homicide being changed to suicide. By he was given false information. One of the main false informations was that when. Sam Goldberg went to the apartment and broke the door down. He was accompanied by staff from the building that Ellen and he lived in. And since then, we have gotten a affidavit. We haven't gotten it. It was given to us an affidavit by the person who allegedly went there. And he said, no, he didn't go there. And as you're going to find out, as you discuss this case, there are more things like that. For instance, on the first uh, autopsy, there were notes from a specialist in brain injuries and neurological injuries by the name of what's it, Rourke. Very re- well respected. It's a fraudulent paragraph but Mrs. in the but Dr. Rourke, but Dr. Rourke always did a report. Dr. Rourke always submitted a bill. And if you ask Dr. Rourke at what time it was, you'd have a line item for what you asked her at time. When she was contacted by us, she didn't remember that. She And if she said, if I didn't remember it, I didn't submit a report, I didn't submit a bill, I didn't see the case. Yet there's a, no, there's, there's a note on the autopsy, which makes it fraudulent. And Sandy and I, Mrs. Greenberg and I, actually met with the medical examiner, Mr. Dr. Golino, and we asked about that. And we said to him, previously before this date, did Dr. Rourke do all those things? Yes. She didn't. Did she do these things that day? No. Did she do those things after you used her as a consultant? Yes. So there's a lot of things here that are very unusual. I'll go back to that the meeting with the representative of the the, the Philadelphia and the Commonwealth Crime uh, thing, the district attorney, the assistant district attorneys, the the uh, detectives, and the uh, who else, Sandy? The medical examiners. Did you ever have a meeting like that before? No. Have you had a meeting like that since then? No. Is there, is there any, any record of it? that meeting? No. And then let, I'll give you another. I have we have loads of these. There's a, there was an instance after the case was closed, and they were not longer no longer investigating or doing anything. And a medical examiner person in Florida by the name of Jan Johnson received the photographs, and by happenstance she was speaking to Tom Brennan, our investigator. And she said, Tom, are you in Harrisburg, aren't you? And Tom said, yes. And she said, well, this is, I've gotten these photographs three months. Yeah, I've got these photographs. And Tom says, you know, it's three months after the investigation is closed. How are you obtaining evidence from an evidence room, meaning photographs? That's evidence. I don't, I don't mean to talk down to anybody, but that's evidence that's been locked up, those photographs. Well, she had them. Somebody in Philadelphia had sent them to her. Well, she said to Tom, Tom, this is not a, a suicide. This is a homicide. I'm just trying to show you some things that happened. And I've got more of them. But these are things that were happening as we go along, which were just more and more roadblocks, canyons, holes in the road to try and prevent this. The one thing they don't want, apparently, is for us to go to court with them. They have fought tooth and nail. They've even caught, made some BS proposals to negotiate with us, which are absolutely astoundingly stupid. They want us to wait for their medical examiner can review the case, and we agree not to sue anybody. But when we were going to go to court, the city filed an appeal, which was not granted in the lower court, it was granted the next court up or whatever, so we had to play that game. And I call it a game because that's all these things are, it's a game. I said they used every trick in their toolbox. And we ended up not going. They appealed it. 
which means they went to a, a, a higher court and said, let's say, let's just for lack of uh, my legal expertise and knowledge, we have court, one level court, two level court, three is the Supreme Court. That's the highest. So court one, they filed an appeal, so we couldn't do anything. So now we go to court two, which is maybe the Commonwealth Court. Okay. Two judge, three judges. So they had the case. They had the the two lawyers speak for 15 minutes, November 15th. And we didn't hear anything for till when, Sandy? A long time. A long time. So they issued the two judges, two, excuse me, two of the three judges said that Sandy and I do not have standing to take this to court. But we're her parents. And the third judge said, okay, yes, you have standing and should be able to. Parenthetically, the lower court judge who lost the case, so to speak, wrote a 16-page opinion with all the legal footnotes saying how Sandy and I were right and we should be able to do that, okay? So now, a couple of weeks ago later, after November 15th was months ago, many months, the, the judges come out with their decision. So as I said, two to one, that we don't have a, a standing. But here's the corker. The decision was 32 pages long. Are you familiar with this at all, Emily? Yes, I've read it. I did read this um, with a lot of sensitivity to your position and trying to be objective in my own way about, you know, whether I approach this with an open mind. Um, it is frankly heartbreaking to read the conclusion, but I want to hear your voice. I can, I can weigh in okay. and I'm happy to, but I want okay. to hear your voice, which I'm is why I'm going to start off by saying, I read the, I read the first paragraph of the, the, the judges that said, which did not have standing. And I remember the last sentence, the last sentence in the first paragraph of their, their decision says that the investigation by the police in Philadelphia, the medical examiner, and the district attorney were what? Flawed. Flawed. Yeah. Flawed. Flawed. Mm-hmm. Then it goes on, and even it goes more. Actually, if you, first of all, as, as attorney, you know how unusual this is, that they vote against you, but they, they it's like we won, we lost the battle, but we're winning the war, if you follow what I'm saying. Because this decision is a blueprint, we hope, for others to look at in reviewing this case and knowing what's going on. But they basically said that Sandy and I someday should get justice for Ellen, the truth. All we want is the truth. And they say that. I believe that's what it says. You, you, you can correct me and, you know, help me say things better. I don't mind that at all. But that's the way I understand it. It's 30 pages of why we are right, but don't have the rights to sue according to them. The two things that struck me about this decision and also your situation. Um, first is that there's sort of a rubric that exists that is totally rigid and totally immovable. And for people like you who are in a devastating position that you've never been in before and never could have imagined, you have no playbook and there is no rule book that helps you to determine that you should have operated within the statute of limitations for wrongful death in the beginning as this Um, judge said to you, part of her denying this, um, well, she essentially denying your position um, is essentially that, well, you you didn't use the options that were available to you at the time. It's not your standing that did so. So it it struck me as just how, how disappointing that was, because the whole point of this justice system and the court system is that it should exist to help us it's, a, it's an aid to us as citizens. It should not be a huge roadblock to what we see as obvious justice and any semblance of peace. And the second thing that struck me, and this is sort of the horror that I feel, I'm so sorry that you have to experience it, that frankly, so many millions of Americans do, when they have a taste of what is frankly an anything but just justice system, you realize how much energy and effort and resources are deployed to prevent you from seeking or obtaining that justice that would have been way cheaper and way easier and way simpler if they would just acquiesce to what you want. Meaning if they had just changed that determination back to suicide or um, unknown, 
then it would have opened up all of your options. And yet your tax dollars, ironically, are being spent against your position now, defending and, and arguing against your position now to do anything but amend that determination by the ME. The statute of limitations starts again if something was concealed, if you get new information. This is true. We have gotten new information all along. We have nothing but evidence, facts. We have no opinion. So I believe we're still, I don't understand what you're saying, but I'm under the impression because we have gotten new information, the medical examiners, forensic pathologists, that told us that the wounds were post-mortem. But, and we, she was asked, when did she do the exam? Well, she did the exam in 2015. I might have the dates wrong, but it's okay. And she's now in doing a deposition in 2018. Well, where's your report? Oh, I was told not to write a report. I'm she telling you. She had all kinds of measurements. <laughs> it wasn't, they had a, a, a specimen that they've retained. They, yeah. And she was asked to examine it examine it, but was asked not to write a report. Right. And we didn't find this out until she was deposed. Two years later. Now, she has retracted some of her staunchness or single-minded about that, but that might be, we. I would think. It doesn't matter. It's all recorded and it's out there. But she didn't write. See, I think the important thing is not, maybe not the conclusion. You didn't write a report either way two years ago. It's not part of the file. And we're, they never, they never told let us. us know any of so this we did. We, again, I'm going to talk, say about the statute of limitations. I believe that's new information, right. so that may qualify. You're an attorney. I'm not. I hope it does for you. I absolutely hope it does for you. The that was what was embedded in this decision, in part yeah, because there was a multi pronged, you know, conclusion here, notwithstanding the dissent, as you talked about. Can can you share for listeners what Sam's story was of the night that Ellen died, so that they understand what his story? No, we, we can't. We don't know. We don't know it. You'd have to interview him. Yes, go ahead. All we know is he was taken away in handcuffs, taken to the police station, met by his an attorney, and released. That's all we know. One of the things that I got booted for or chastised. Chastised is better. We were after we in the Jewish religion. You have a, a a funeral and you meet. I'm sick of all religions. You meet afterwards to sit shiva. What to start that? So Sam's in a room with his mother, his father, my wife, me, and I said, Sam, you know, the first people the police are going to think about this is someone that knew Ellen, and that's you. And everybody exploded at me like I was doing something terrible, and I thought I was doing something helpful if you understand and that at those at that time right after the funeral we still were sam was a part of our family going to be part of our family okay but do you understand why i got chastised and i always thought i was doing something nice because i would watch perry mason when i was a kid or i would watch <laughs> the detective shows but that's what they do right especially if she's not outside they're going to wonder who that she lives with or you know is close to could possibly have done this deed and I got my wife yelled at me. Okay, Everybody, I, I'm, I felt bit. I, I'm, I'm ventilating that I got chastised for doing what I thought was the right thing, giving him some advice. But we don't know anything that he has to say about this. Not a peep. In that decision that was just issued by the appellate court, mm-hmm. part of the reason that it is so voluminous is because the court goes to great lengths to discuss every detail in not only the police report and the ME's reports, all of your experts' reports, and also um, everything that, that Sam Goldberg reported to law enforcement and everything that occurred thus with law enforcement. The, the reason I'm saying this, excuse me, just for a moment, is to, is to say that all of that happens to be in this opinion, which is in front of me. And if you if you would like me to share it, I'm, I'm more than happy to. I'm also we have respectful. Of, That's fine, fine with yeah. us. To that point about what happened at Shiva, uh, the autopsy reports and every, you know, it has been mentioned multiple times that your daughter had multiple contusions on her upper and lower extremities in various stages of resolution. And one of your experts concluded in his report that um, it indicated thus prior beatings, um, his words. 
So in this position now that you're in, what are your thoughts on that situation she may have been in? Not a very good situation, but we we never knew. She never told us, and she apparently had covered up the bruising from us, but we just never knew. All we knew is what I said. She wanted to come home. I thought she was anxious or, you know, whatever, and I didn't want to, I wanted her to get help, and I couldn't give it, and I wanted her, if we could, to save the job, because jobs were not plentiful. So. She kept a journal. She followed the instructions of the psychiatrist. She had trace amounts of her medications in her toxicology report, which is what occurred. And then you have the attorney general's office making their own scenario up about she had, uh, you know, I mean, she loved herself too much to do anything, you know, that would hurt her in any way. Something important here Um, is when Ellen went to the psychiatrist, the psychiatrist notes have this conclusion. Ellen is not suicidal. She wasn't suicidal. But we have an expert opinion here by, by a healthcare professional who's treating her and who wrote that in her notes. Right. But then you have people in the attorney general's office. On the 11th anniversary of Ellen's death, some of the lower members of the attorney general's, namely uh, Christopher Phillips, said Ellen was definitely suicidal. In a press release a that press he's, release. About to release he's about to release. about to release of her passing. death. Right. He, they never really released it. We saw it and we, we, we talked about it and then they didn't release it. But Christopher Phillips, I think his psychiatric or, so, or psychological training is probably in a thimble, <laughs> if that much. But this is what the this is what the authorities are doing and saying. Just they because they're employed by the city or at least tell the truth. Is, at least tell the truth. Yeah, God damn that it! Doesn't give them license to, to be just, creative, right? And that's what they were. Let's stick to the. They facts. never call. They, as far as we know. The attorney general got the case because it was a conflict of interest because Larry Krasner, the district attorney in Philadelphia, was our attorney before he got elected, and he sent it to Shapiro. And we, Shapiro or his off his uh, staff did not call her psychiatrist even in Philadelphia to ask what the diagnosis was. And we had a friend of the family who was a, psyche, a psychiatric detective or something, forensic psychologist, he called. She answered the question. It's disgusting. It's terribly disgusting. The only thing is, if we can win, it's not just for us. It may be for, I don't know if you're married, your kid someday or somebody else's child or somebody else's sister or brother. This is the way the justice is. But Shapiro, on I was told or I heard the other day, did change that creative thing a little bit where you can get things. It's not in there. It's not in there. You know? Do you know what I'm talking about? I do. The reason that I'm pulling this up uh, is because I want to focus just for a moment on the procedural posture of this case. And then I think it is worth, um, if you are okay with this later, or we don't have to, um, me going into exactly what this says in terms of the statement of facts. But in terms of the posture right now, my summary is that essentially you went to court and you said, we are asking for a writ of mandamus at the time or declaratory relief. You were saying either have the ME change the manner of death or the, the, the death from suicide to homicide or court direct the ME to do so. And at the first level, as you called it earlier, Mr. Greenberg, the trial court agreed with you and in fact said, yes, you have standing. And the, you sued under your titles as, as administrators of Ellen's estate. Um, and the ME's office appealed and the ME and the, the city and the county and the government agencies. And they appealed and said, you do not have standing because the injuries that you have expressed essentially don't hold water. And the appellate court, which is the decision that we've been talking about this whole time, um, you are absolutely right, said it was deeply flawed and went to great lengths to ensure that was all part of the record. But they essentially said, you're standing as administrators of her estate. Uh, do not permit 
them to order the ME to change or for the ME to change because in part, like we talked about, um, the wrong, the, what was available to you, your remedies, you said, you know, if this is changed to homicide, it enables us to pursue these remedies on her behalf. And the trial court sort of, or the appellate court sort of said, in some ways, these aren't available to you anyway. That was the statute of limitations I brought up. And, or they said, or you can pursue them. You can pursue them as her parents, not as her administrators. And part of the argument that the ME and these agencies have made um, is reducing all of the injuries that you articulated, all the options, reducing it to a, quote, stigma of suicide, that they put essentially that that was your whole goal was to reduce that stigma associated with her name. And I, I did feel the appellate court did a, a, an excellent job of saying that is not what you were arguing. That was one of many things and many reasons why you were passionately requesting justice here um, in the form of not only common sense, which we can get into the mechanics a little bit later as well, but also that it was such a larger constellation of that. And essentially it all boiled down to each argument that you had, each injury that you listed one by one, the appellate court said, we're so sorry. However, right. um, you know, these different things are made. But I, the reason I brought up this particular page is because, you know, it's, it's not necessarily that the ME can never change. P- courts are permitted to intercede to correct the improper exercise of discretion. Um, if an official acts capriciously or arbitrarily, the discretion is always subject to review. And that, to me, felt like the worst part about this, because there, the whole point is that no one is actually, you know, devoid or immune here. There's always a review process built into the system. And here, unfortunately, it's not being exercised. Right. Uh, in, the, in the face of, as one of your experts reported, 60 facts, 60 issues with this case that lead to a determination of homicide instead of suicide. And this court published all 60 of them, didn't they? Correct. In addition to all the other ones. Right. So in this posture, my, my, the point of this, me saying that is the question is, what would you do now if her death was indeed ruled a homicide? What then would you do or hope for? Well, first of all, we'd like a new investigation by an impartial investigator, led by an impartial investigator with impartial people doing the investigation. We want the truth. That's why we want the conclusion of the ME changed so we can have this done impartially. As long as they say it's a suicide, it's not impartial. You know, we don't, if you look at all our stuff, we point very few fingers at anybody. It's only lately when we just can't do anything that we started with playing, suing the medical examiners for uh, uh, misconduct to cover up a homicide. We've never said the police were bad. We never said the district attorney was bad. We never said anyone was bad. We just want the truth. Stay with us. More of the Fox True Crime podcast after this. In your original letters and emails, yes, you just asked for a second look. You, right. you, you literally just asked for them to take another look at this. And beside that, I think there is a a, a quote here someplace after this decision came out that somebody in the criminal justice department, for lack of a better term, did say there may be other reasons for Ellen's death. I think it was Galino or maybe somebody else. I'm not sure. But I think after this came out, the city, somebody in the city said there may be other things that are involved in this. I'm pretty sure. Original, I, yeah, yeah. Originally, um, when the ME did direct uh, it to be revisited, and they they took the slice of the spinal, you know, and, and did that review, um, mm-hmm. that that ME yes said it could be essentially, it it wasn't necessarily suicide. But uh, I'm, are you mm-hmm. saying that ME meaning our 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 expert? No, no. Saying okay. Dr. Lindsay Emery. Right. Okay. Good. But actually, mm-hmm. all three, in their own way when all three of them were deposed, could see a lot of gray areas. Right. When they had to really swear under oath in front of video cameras and audio sound, the steadfastness might have been a little softer, if you understand what what was going on here. Osborne said based on what he learned, he would have changed it, but he never did. He testified to that under oath that he would change it, and he never did. 
Of course, then he told, told, told a, a, a fallacious story about he went through the snow with the spinal specimen for Rourke to see it because she's an older lady and she didn't want her to warm to the snow. It's bull. It's 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 lies. Okay. Okay. Let's yeah. get back. It, well, yes. I just get sued. Yeah. But I'm just saying he, he, that's a story he told. Yeah. How he took it to after he said he would change it, knowing what he knows now, and he never did. Look, go look at he, the. He look, took look, an oath. Right. To so, pr- practice, and he didn't live up to it. He didn't live up to his responsibility as a member of society, and as a member of the criminal justice system in Pennsylvania and especially Philadelphia. Here, here's something I'll throw out here. I don't understand why people believe me. That makes me wonder what, what they think of their elected officials, if they believe me and Sandy. You chose them to, to protect you, to you know protect you or whatever, and, and administer justice correctly. And here we're saying they're not doing a good job, a terrible job, and our situation which may be just our situation, but I don't think it is, is false. It's, it's wrong. You believe you two strangers who you never met. Well, I think the facts state so clearly why you are so credible um, and why, as again, in the words of the presiding judge, it was so deeply flawed. Do you mind if we, is it okay if we go into that right now? Go ahead. Okay. So Sam... Goldberg's story is that he claims that he called 911 and per the 911 operator's instructions to administer CPR, that he lifted your daughter's head and in lifting her dead, he encountered the knife that was in her chest. This is his story. So after that, um, the police came and they took his story uh, and they Also, um, medics arrived and pronounced the victim dead. Uh, After taking an initial statement from Sam, the officers accompanied him to a police station for further questioning, and they released him that evening. No summary or other detailed record of that interrogation was ever included to the record provided to the court. No one was ever, it was never made available to any experts whatsoever. There's no indication that the security guard that he referenced as accompanied him, was ever interviewed or ever questioned. Um, And to your point earlier, Mr. Hanton, the security guard, expressly stated he did not accompany Sam to the sixth floor and was not present when he entered the apartment. Your daughter was found with 20 stab wounds, including a severe laceration to the top of her skull and stab wounds to the rear of her neck and spine, in addition to those contusions all over her lower and, and upper extremities. She was examined by essentially an investigator with the ME's office two hours later, who then briefed Dr. Osborne, the ME, um, later. And it appears as if, based on that briefing and the autopsy results, that's why that, well, first of all, the determination, again, was initially homicide, um, but why there was so much missing. Because it seems as if the investigator, for example, as we know now, nonsensically did not do a full and and important investigation. Uh, He never detailed what parts of the body he examined. He never detailed um, many things. In fact, the amount of stab wounds were later corrected to 20 because he failed to see the amount and and the like. Exactly. There were so many omissions from that initial investigation. And the tragedy besides your daughter's death is the depth of those stab wounds and so much as well about the surrounding scene that essentially was failed to be investigated and reported. Um, the disarray of the kitchen, knives everywhere, the middle of her meal that she was cooking at the time, and so much more. And because Dr. Osborne initially concluded that the manner of her death was homicide, uh, detectives obtained a search warrant and came the next day to execute, to get the evidentiary value two days later. Um, And in doing so, found that the kitchen had been scoured and a number of the apartment's contents removed, which we later learned was because the building's property manager explained that a police officer recommended to call a third-party service to have the apartment thoroughly cleaned. There's also no evidence or record that she was ever 
interviewed, that the cleaning representatives of services were ever interviewed by authorities at all. Um, do you want to weigh in on any of that now? Sure, but it went through a whole lot of stuff. Yeah. That's okay. just the tip of the iceberg here, let's too. Go back, let's go back to Sam and the 911 call. It starts out okay, but it gets, I don't know what's going on. Why aren't you opening the door? What are you doing? You know, things like that. It wasn't, mm-hmm. are you okay? Can I help you? Do you need help? No, 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 no. As for being accompanied, he was never accompanied. Just plain old lie. Number three, in the 911 call, he says she's lying flat on the kitchen floor in lots of blood. When she was found and photographed, she was stooped up against the cabinets, kitchen cabinets. Number four, um, the the apartment had a swing lock. That's like the lock you see sometimes in a, a hotel room. Not a bolt lock, a swing lock. Number one, that can be locked from outside by just putting thread around it or dental floss around it and pulling it while you're outside. If you the look, latch itself. The, the latch that swings, the little ball and swings, okay? So you can lock it from outside. Also, if you look at the photograph taken by the medical examiners, there are two screws, I believe, on the frame that are slightly dislodged, but the other part of the lock is intact and not even damaged. You'd have to be thinner than you and me, Emily, to get through that <laughs> space. Number, what would I, okay, number five or six or seven, I don't know. The old building manager, before before the, the cleaners, the uh, sanitizers came, took a, pic, a video of the apartment. The police took that from her. Guess, it still exists, but so, they're withholding it from us. We don't know if it, well, time out. They don't, they haven't, they don't say they have it, I believe. Mm-hmm. Sandy might be right, I don't know, but we don't, we have never seen that. That tape. It's a suicide. They should show it to us. They have it or they don't have it. They lost a lot of things or they lost things and found things as we pressed them or brought lawsuits or subpoenas. It was never forthcoming easily. In fact, we just had a a, a, a judge rule that they have to show us stuff. That they're gonna, Our lawyers and our experts are going to meet with the city to go over the, the evidence that the city has. It'll be kept at the city for safekeeping, but but uh, my lawyer seemed very pleased with that. So he was smiling, and I said, don't play cards if you're going to smile after something like that. <laughs> but the judge, that's what she ruled, that we had a right to that, to see that stuff. What else did you say that I can refute? Well, I went into sort of the incompetence okay. displayed by well, the Sam investigator. did enter the apartment, finally, Okay. Now, the, my daughter had a knife handle sticking out of her, her chest on the right side, so, on her, her left side, with a white towel around it and her left hand on it. Just, for, for, just to start off, let's say Ellen was right-handed. We both know that. But why was there a towel around the, the handle? We've now come up with the idea, since the police never fingerprinted the handle, maybe Ellen's fingerprints are not on the handle, and somebody showed up unexpectedly, and they put the towel around it. So, And a, a forensics specialist by the name of Baden said that if the fingerprints should be there if they weren't smudged or dislodged. Now, it may not show what we think it shows. It may show Ellen's hand is on it, and that's it. But it may show Ellen and Sam's, and even that's not anything that's worth anything because he lived in the apartment. Maybe he picked right. up the knife. Right. But if it's only Sam's or somebody else's fingerprints on that knife and not Ellen's, That means something, as you can well, being an attorney, you can well figure out. Uh, What else did you mention? The incompetence of the investigator that failed to take her temperature, that failed to list the body parts he examined, that failed to see all the... Yes, you're absolutely right, but I'm not... We're we're not experts, okay? Mm -hmm. You you know, this is the only crime scene I've ever been involved in. Mm -hmm. Uh, The only other thing I know is they didn't even spray... uh, What's the stuff for luminol for blood? Mm -hmm. It was never done. So even if the apartment was sanitized, quote-unquote... Oh, by the way, the company that sanitized the apartment usually or customarily or takes a picture of the scene before it sanitizes it. There's no picture by the company that sanitized the apartment. Number say nine, the police didn't come for two days, and they had to get a search warrant to get back into the apartment. 
because they had never taped off the apartment with police tape. So anybody could go in and out all they wanted to. In fact, we, we told you, I think we told you. Initially, before the police got there, the fire department got there. They oh, went actually, up, EMS. They came down. They said, you have a homicide up there. Yeah, well, they said there was a hom- you have a hom- They came down yeah. and they spoke to Hanton, I believe, and they said, you have a homicide up there. Again, I'm going to say, I believe I was told that Sam left there in handcuffs. Now, that doesn't make him guilty of anything. I'm just going to tell you what was done. And again, there is no record of what happened at the police station, as far as I know. Let's move on to this. So as we know, the it was changed, Osborne changed it from homicide to suicide. And I, I want to make sure that listeners understand those circumstances, because you've mentioned this meeting before. So approximately one month after the autopsy was performed, Dr. Osborne, the ME, attended a meeting with Dr. Gulino, essentially his boss, and then, as you mentioned, a representative of the DAO and two uh, police officers, essentially. Or maybe more. We're not sure. We, we, there's no record of the meeting. Okay. Well, Copy. And in not, that in that meeting, and now, and what I'm reading from is, again, the appellate opinion. Fine, so this fine. is now sort of in the official record of the courts. This is how the courts are seeing this, that in that meeting, the... DAO and the PPD representatives discussed with the ME their interactions with Sam and the statement Sam gave. Dr. Osborne was told that Sam had broken down the apartment door, that a security guard had witnessed it. Furthermore, he was told that an unnamed investigating officer found the door's swing bar lock in a damaged condition consistent with Sam's account of a forced reentry. It was the first time that Dr. Osborne had been called into a meeting to discuss the manner of death listed on a death certificate. As you said earlier, based on the information provided in that meeting, Dr. Osborne reversed his prior medical opinion and determined that the victim's wounds must have been self-inflicted and consequently amended the death certificate to indicate it was suicide. There's a picture of the, of the swing lock that shows it just the way I said. Mm-hmm. Two screws slightly pulled, not even totally dislodged from the, the wood, slightly, whatchamacallit, slightly dislodged. And the swing lock, now, if you can, you decide for yourself. I don't think it shows any damage. The swing lock is a, is a loop with a ball on it. That's all it is. I'm sorry. I can't, I, I can't say that that's, that's correct. What struck me about this when I read that was how apparently someone telling the medical examiner, what someone told him was enough to make him change the manner of death. And yet, the mountains of evidence that you have provided in the form of your expert reports after their expert analyses has failed to even move the needle one centimeter. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to just list the experts you've employed because it's important, um, in, in my opinion, for this. Here is who you have enlisted to provide their expert opinions. And you've obviously mentioned some of them. The, a renowned forensic pathologist who determined essentially that not only are suicides extremely rare to occur by stabbing, but there's essentially no support to support that she had the requisite state of mind to commit suicide. And that pathologist noted the absence of records from the police station interrogating Sam and the like. That was Dr. Weck that you talk about. That investigators made no effort to examine the knife in her for fingerprints, as you mentioned. Um, or any fingerprints. Or any fingerprints. You hired forensic pathologist and neuropathologist, Dr. Ross, as you mentioned. He provided mm. three reports, by mm. the way, and his report, one of them, was what contained a 60-item list comprising reasons to change the manner of death from suicide back to the original determination of homicide. And what struck me about the 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 luminous explanation of these 60 points included blood stain patterns, um, the towel in her hand, the eyeglasses, which indicated staging, the lack of a suicide note, all of the omissions, the lack of mental disorders, the, the, all of the crime scene inconsistencies and lack of controls and just every detail possible that was either omitted or totally inconsistent, um, especially the fact that her those horrible stab wounds, two of which were proved to be post-mortem. Uh, I mean, how about the wound on top of her head, that big gash she had? Yes, yes. Um, and the doc- and your, oh. Dr. Eelman, is to your point, um, 
that was heartbreaking too in his discussion and, and analysis of that. You know, she was in a standing position during some of the stab wounds, seated for others. The sheer number of wounds consistent with homicide. De- uh, Detective Scott again, Gilman. Please, please, please. A very telltale thing. Ellen had a streak of blood going from her nose to her ear. Dried and coagulated. Dried and coagulated. It is very unusual, I'm going to say, but it's really not going to ever happen for blood to travel horizontally. That blood should have gone vertically or had some vertical telltales. It didn't. It was just one stream of blood from the edge of her ear to her edge of her nose to the edge of her ear. It, it, that means she was moved. She was religiously on her back with her head up and she was moved into a sitting position. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Emily. Don't apologize. That was so valuable. And to, to that point, um, that brings up again and underscores the investigator of the Emmy's office who failed to take her temperature, which would have been a more accurate assessment of when she died, which goes to your point of if she had died so much earlier because the blood had the chance to dry rather right. than within the last 45 minutes. Well, what's really good about good that point, Emily? Good point. But what's really good about that blood line, Emily, is it's simple to understand. Yes, you don't have to be a forensic pathologist to understand blood doesn't travel horizontally. Correct. It, it, you know, it goes back to why people believe me, and this is one very easy reason to believe me because mm-hmm. her blood is not traveling vertically like it should. In addition, when you talked about the reconstruction, the, the visual imaging is um, so impactful to see the amount of stab wounds, to your point, to the back of her on her head. As Dr. Ross, again, that's the one that focused on the evidence of the stab wound, which penetrated the cranial cavity and severed the cranial nerves and brain. And um, he goes on to discuss what would happen to a human when that occurs. Um, it is unfathomable that you would derive any other conclusion other than that violent death by the hands of another. You're, you've listed a whole batch of things of why it's not credible that Ellen committed suicide. Please, re, re, you know you said this already, but just re-say re where you're getting this all from. This is the appellate court's decision. I want that to come from, this is what the judges, three oh, judges yeah. were willing yeah. to put their signatures on. Yeah. They said we didn't have certain whatever, but we do, but we're not going to go there. But they said and printed all these things and signed the documents. What more do you want out of th- uh, to, to, to say we were right? We mm-hmm. have a judge. We have three judges, three, not one, not two, not three. And you know, there's more, you know, you've, I just want to make sure that listeners understand how many experts you've employed a, a computational biomechanics and accident reconstruction firm, their determinations consistent with focalized stabbing by an assailant. Um, there is so there's so much to your point. And this was part of, you know, again, the, the appellate judges that were that wanted to make a point of saying in this deeply flawed investigation. Therefore, we want to make sure that everything is on the record here in this decision. And they said, we, we are so sorry to have to deny your request to side with the medical examiner's office and say you did not have standing as administrators of Ellen's estate. However, as parents, you have these options and essentially saying we hope you do secure justice. That is so clearly eluding this. Correct. They said that, yeah. Um, And, you know, there's more. This this case is so so detailed because the whole (laughs) point is... Right. And and the, you know, it's an... The whole point is there's a little bit where the Emmys did revisit... But in my opinion, it seems as if it's too little too late, because, again, that conclusion was not so definitive as to have them change the manner of death. And and uh, all of the information we've discussed, all of the mountain of evidence as to why uh, suicide is is just patently unlikely and frankly impossible um, is they just keep analyzing this specimen from her spinal cord right. and sort of why they keep that. Right. That's and unusual. Yet, That's an unusual in and of itself, isn't it? Great question. Look, I'm going to go back for a second. The 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 testimony of their specialist that said the uh, brain wounds were um, post mortem. I don't even think that's as relevant as the fact she said they told her not to write a report. Right. I think that's more horrible than the. It's it's like goes back to what what always happens. It's not the crime. It's the cover up. Yeah. They told her not to write a report. Well, that's what we're suing them for. You, 
you know, just not following justice. You yeah. hit, you're hiding facts. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm saying we may have uh, uh, statute of limitations reinforced. It may be an interesting argument. It may have to be argued, which it probably will be because they wanted to keep us out. They don't want to see Sandy and I in court with our evidence and our experts. And your tort actions to that point are winding their way through the courts as well. This was one particular action that it was making its way through the Pennsylvania courts that now uh, you are appealing to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. So my hope is that I think this was written to get us to do that. Yeah, I mean, right. And so you're two, you are appealing this and this is going to hopefully be be, uh, heard before the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. And also you have your tort actions um, that are winding their way through. Or maybe it will just hit another uh, chasm, another roadblock. More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. How do you guys feel right now in this moment, if you can describe your your mental health and your energy? And now that, you know, you had a sort of a, a small victory from the courts and the like, what is it Wasn't like for you? It wasn't a small victory. They didn't want to let us see their files. That's not a small victory. We don't have all the facts. In our lawsuit to the medical examiners, it says Jane and John Doe. We don't know who was at that meeting that they had where they changed the uh, Osborne's mind. Maybe there was a 50 policeman there. Maybe there was the detective. Maybe Josh Shapiro was there for all I know. There's no record. And I'm not trying to, you know, I apologize. I raised my voice. But yeah. we don't know what they have. We only have what we have. And we have offered to share and we have shared with them. So the bottom line is I'm exhausted. Tonight. Right <laughs> at this moment. But um, Josh can go on. But I'm determined as Josh is as well. And as long as I'm alive and I'm healthy, they're going to have to talk to Sandy, who's 5'2". Look. Tiny but mighty. I know we're fighting a losing battle, so to speak. It's very hard to do what we're trying to do. Just just to get justice for our daughter, not to to do what we want to do for everyone else so they don't have to do this. A, a, a A criminal lawyer told me to give it up. A former prosecutor told me to give it up. And I'll tell you what, I couldn't do it. I just can't give it up. And I didn't I didn't say what I should have what I could have said. I said, if it was your daughter or son or grandchild, would you give it up? Would you walk away just because of money? Is money more important than the truth? And and what this what we could end up doing, not that I want to be some sort of crusader. I want this for Ellen. I want the truth for Ellen. But there's a, there are other people that this is evolving or involve, involving that you know you realize what I'm saying is true. Maybe not even a big case like this, but it's out there. It could happen to any child or any person, brother or sister or child. And uh, I'm not a, a crusader. I got to tell you that much. If, it, if, I did, if I didn't have to be here, I wouldn't be here. This is not where I want to be. This is where I should be, and I want to be, but I don't want to be here. I don't know if that says everything. This is where I should be. My daughter was brutally, savagely murdered after she spent time being brutally abused by somebody. That's what I think. And that's what the facts show. That's the only facts that really matter. That's the truth. As a final question, and answer can you share about ellen and tell us what she was like and what she loved she was just like me if if sandy wanted (laughs) to insult her she says she's just like you (laughs) that's an insult by the way it's not a compliment she was just life was was for living for her and she was filled with positivity and she she just was fun i think some i miss her terribly well, she and I didn't always get along, but we did. But there was there's something about her 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 character or what she did. Ellen applied for a program in speech pathology, and it wasn't for her. So she went and got her teaching degree. She got a reading specialty certificate. I don't know the right things. Then but she you know, got two master's degrees. Which she did on her own in in Philadelphia. While working full time in Philadelphia, wow. while we were in Harrisburg, I I'm not beat up. 
I have adrenaline for this. This is what I'm supposed to do. I'm her father. I'm not supposed to walk away and 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 say, this is okay to treat my daughter this way, to treat anybody's daughter this way, but basically my daughter. I don't know. I didn't start this to be a crusader. Believe me, I I I didn't. But I cannot walk away from Ellen's death being happy that it's this is how it's gonna be. Yeah. We have other things planned that I'm not going to discuss. You'll see them or feel them or learn about them as we go along. But we're not done. We are not done. We're not going away. So They thought we'd be done in a year or two, I bet. Because we were in Harrisburg and they were in Philadelphia. But we were not, we're not done. Anybody that touches this thing, they should see my daughter with the blood on her face and the blood going down her side of her face. And that's the image they should have when they look at their own children, because that's what could happen and how you could end up in this in this type of th- situation that we're in. I want them to see that, that the people who were involved and who touched this and, and worked against us, I think they should see children and relatives with blood on their faces and bodies, because that's what they did to my daughter. Mr. and Mrs. Greenberg, thank you for your time today. I'm so sorry for your loss, truly. You know I'm so sorry. Like I keep saying, maybe something good that we didn't think of is going to come out of this whole thing. And I hope so. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com.